Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We are building a community of people who want to understand how to positively apply behavioral science to their work and life. We achieve this by having fun and engaging conversations with a wide variety of people. Today, we talked with Dr. Amit Sood. Dr. Sood is a Mayo Clinic physician with specialties in pediatrics, internal medicine, and oncology, as well as certificates in acupressure, yoga, and reiki. He is the author of several books, including The Guide to Stress-Free Living and The Handbook for Happiness, along with dozens of peer-reviewed papers. He's a remarkably well-rounded and humble healthcare practitioner, and it's clear from talking with him that he cares deeply about his patients and the quality of his work. His passion was inspirational for us, and we hope you have the same experience. Definitely. Our conversation circled around, well, indirectly sometimes, the topic of happiness and how we can increase it and what takes it away. Amit had some fascinating insights into specific things that we can do to increase our happiness, and we were glad to speak with him about it. In our grooving session, we discuss how we can apply these insights into our work. Specifically, we look at the types of interactions that we have, contentious interactions, transactional, or affiliative. We look at the increasing need for responsiveness that people have and how that impacts how we interact with them and the way that we work. And we also groove about intentionality. Which was very fun. Okay, so we would be grateful if you can help expand our Behavioral Grooves community by recommending this or another Behavioral Grooves episode to a friend or leaving a review on your favorite pod service. Also, if you're interested in connecting with Tim or me, we can be reached on Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, Our handles will be shown in the show notes, and we would absolutely love to start an affiliative conversation with you. Love, love, love. Please sit back and be happy as you listen to our conversation with Dr. Amit Sood. Amit Sood, welcome to the Behavioral Groups Podcast. Thank you for having me. Lovely to meet you both and lovely to connect with your audience. Yeah, thank you. We're going to start with a a little speed round. Would you prefer to travel with an itinerary or without an itinerary? Without. Coffee or tea? Coffee, definitely. (laughs) Definitely. Which mythical character would you like to see brought to life? A dragon or a unicorn? A unicorn. I have two daughters. <laughs> you would be a hero if you were to do that. All right. So which is harder for people to do, to apply compassion or apply forgiveness? Com- uh, forgiveness is more difficult. More difficult. Well, let's let's go from there. So actually, I, I would love to talk about unicorns, but I think <laughs> we should start with uh, you know, you, you have kind of, you, you've written a few books, you've done a lot of work on happiness and on resilience and on a variety of things, and you have a, a way of looking at that, of which compassion and forgiveness and acceptance, and I'm going to draw a blank on the other, gratitude and meaning are, are some of those main factors. So why don't you talk a little bit about that, and then we can get into, you know, how, how people apply that into their lives. Sure. Uh, you know, in response to your question, which is uh, more difficult, compassion or forgiveness, when you look at it from a hardcore scientific perspective, uh, contemplating revenge activates the brain, brain's pleasure center. Uh, 
So if you punch me on the nose and if I'm thinking about retribution, that's giving me pleasure. And uh, how can I let go of eating dark chocolate, which gives me pleasure, which is retribution. <laughs> Why? So forgiveness by itself is challenging for the human brain because uh, unforgiveness uh, activates our pleasure center. While when you look at compassion, thinking or acting compassion activates the brain's pleasure center. So we feel rewarded when we think in compassionate terms or when we think in uh, or we act in compassionate terms. So compassion is much more easier, much more accessible. And uh, you can uh, apply compassion very broadly. Forgiveness intrinsically means you were hurt. Mm. It's often construed as weakness by people. Uh, and while compassion is empowering, and, and that's why compa and compassion is intrinsic to us. We all have had compassion because, you know, everybody who has worked with or, or you know, raised little children knows compassion. So compassion is intrinsic to who we are. It's sort of wired in our brain. Uh, the five principles in the program are gratitude, compassion, acceptance, meaning, and forgiveness. So the way we have done this is I was looking at what principles engage the brain's higher cortical areas like prefrontal cortex in particular and what okay. principles quite the lower limbic areas and these five principles uh, really stood out so we uh, sort of put them in the program and then we assign each them each of them a day so mondays are our days of gratitude tuesdays of compassion wednesdays of acceptance and so on fridays our day of forgiveness and uh, you will notice that uh, we try to be pragmatic. You only have to forgive one day a week. It's only on <laughs> how did you How did you come to arrive at these five uh, pillars as the, as the principles? So these five principles all engage, from a neuroscience perspective, the brain's prefrontal cortex, and they quiet our lower cortical areas, the amygdala. That's number one. Number two, when you look at a variety of different uh, faiths, different um, uh, belief patterns in the world, these principles encompass almost all the all the different belief patterns I can think about. Uh, each each of the regions or, or belief patterns have a specific focus. We try to integrate them all. And uh, two of these are very active, uh, gratitude and compassion. Acceptance, meaning, and forgiveness uh, take a little bit of effort. So we start with two easy, which engaging ones, which are gratitude and compassion, and then we build on to the others. No single principle is enough. Uh, so if you have just gratitude or just compassion, you'll, you'll, you'll either just, you know, gratitude alone can become very superficial. Compassion alone can really deplete you. Forgiveness alone is just not possible unless you have these principles. And so just as we have five, you know, fingers in our hands, so that's how we have these five principles. That's fantastic. And so help, help our listeners understand when you talk about this program, um, this is a program that, that you've developed um, working with Mayo and different things. And it's also kind of, you've outlined it in a couple of the books that you've written. So help us understand how, how this program works. So first of all, I have, uh, I have learned from over, a, you know, 
thousands and thousands, perhaps 100,000 patients who I work with, uh, thousands and thousands of colleagues and scientists and philosophers and contemplatives. So it, it's a tall order for me to say I have developed, I, I'm really standing on uh, on on the mountain of uh, these, uh, you know, highly, highly accomplished beings. So we've just sort of tried to put things together. Right. So the way this uh, program works, it has uh, two phases. One is the, the bolus phase uh, where we help you learn the core neuroscience uh, uh, of stress. So when you look at the, the <clears throat> stressors overall in the world, there is the global uh, uh, perspective, which is the constant state of uh, speed uh, increasing in the world, which is causing our, our cognitive and emotional overload. Then is the uh, regional perspective or local perspective, which is when wherever you're working or, or the family you're living, there is the state of demand resource imbalance and perceived lack of control and lack of meaning. I mean, everybody's trying to pack 10 pounds of sand and three pounds sent back. Yeah. And then the third part is the personal factor, which is how our brain operates. Our brain is wonderful at multiplying our stress. So, uh, you know, we mind wander a lot. Um, you know, think about this. When you step on a nail, uh, what will you do? Withdraw your foot or dig deeper? Um, the, the answer is withdraw your foot. And now if you turn on the news, then there is news of a terrorist attack. What will you do? Turn it off right away or watch more? So most people will watch more. So see, our sensory system is designed to withdraw from pain while our mind is designed to go deeper into pain. So we have some, some neural vulnerabilities which make us multiply our stress. So I, I sort of shared this in an uplifting way with the participants as a first step. And then we share as a second step solutions to this. How do you work with uh, the imperfect system, global, regional, and personal? And how do you find ways to transcend these through practices that are practices and perspectives that are simple, uh, deep, scalable, very relationship-centric and very 21st century. So we have nothing like, you know, 45 minutes of meditation. We really ask people to, you know, sometimes what I share is if you have a, if you have a, a cup of, cup of milk we don't add more milk to the cup of milk we add chocolate powder in the milk so the volume doesn't increase uh, so that's the whole whole model so we share that over maybe two hours or so uh, okay. and uh, uh, the core program and then there is the infusion after the bolus that continues for all one's life okay and those are just again you're you're helping people live in this life that we have, which as you had mentioned, these global stressors, the local stressors and personal components to, to, to live life less stressed, more happy and, and have a, just an overall better quality. Is that the, the components of who would, who would come to a, a session that you hold or who would be beneficial for, for something like this? So any homo sapiens with a brain will uh, <laughs> So, I'm out. All right, there you go. I hope it includes both of you. Uh, <laughs> so, so anyone with a working brain. So, we we basically the entire program is really anchored in neuroscience. It is right. really anchored in understanding of 
vulnerabilities in the design of human brain. So for our ancestors, for example, it was very important to focus on threat. And that's why we turn, when we turn on the news and see a negative news, we keep watching more. And that's why news channels feed us negative news. Even people who say they like to watch positive news, when you show them positive and negative news, their eyes track the negative news. That's yeah. how we design. So, so, so we have some, some traps in our brain, uh, which has made us cognitively very brilliant, but emotionally, you know, still a work in progress. And so, this, oh, go ahead. No, no, this combination is causing a lot of stress. So we share that, uh, and that, that applies to, I think, I think everybody, because we all have very similar designs of the brain. Right. There's a there's a quote that you uh, so from the the stress free living book um, that I just loved. I've I've, I've highlighted it and, and wrote it. I just want to read it here because I think it ties right into what you were just saying. It says the mind isn't a rational, pragmatic utilitarian. Rather, it's short sighted, lacks self control, is guided by rigid biases, jumps to premature conclusions, and frequently gets hijacked by impulses, infatuations, and fear. Although a phenomenal tool, the mind falls, pay, fi, falls prey to distractions and the sway of emotion. The mind swims in a current of contradictory and competing predis predispositions. It wants to be happy, but forgets what will make it happy. I love yeah. that. And, and I, I, can't, I can't believe I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> you did. It was really, more really complex than, so, so, you know, if you and I met in a forest and 10,000 years ago, and we walked from each away from each other without punching each other's nose that was a very good meeting because <laughs> right we were not kind to each other but now if you don't respond to my text in five minutes i'm going to take it personal and yeah. i'll feel insulted because you're not responsive to me anymore you don't care about me anymore right and so we've become much more sensitive our, our expectations are unrealistic from each other and that's how we get emotionally hurt. I mean, emotional hit and run happens every single day. And there's no law for that. Uh, I'm sure you perhaps have experienced an emotional hit and run in the last few days, right? So, and then our, our brain tends to multiply this. We stew on it. We mind wander. We add additional context. And we get stuck in this, unfortunately. And if you, on top of that, have, have genetic predisposition, uh, to stress. Uh, so, for example, you know, people who have low prefrontal dopamine tend to be anxious and have low patience. So, earlier when somebody was driving and uh, they would cut me across on the road, you know, come immediately in front of me, then I would say, oh, you know, this guy doesn't, you know, he needs a driver's license test. And now I say, oh, this guy has low prefrontal dopamine. And so <laughs> perspective of how I look at, so, so basically, if people, if you have genetic vulnerability to stress and, and were not treated kindly as a child, those are two strikes. And on top of that, if you have an adult stressor, that's the third strike. Anyone who has all three strikes gets a mental health problem. Oh. They are the ones who develop, you know, depression and anxiety. So it is not people's fault. About 80, 90% of the stress is not an individual's mistake. It just happens to us. Wow. And that is what, uh, that is what keeps me awake at night. And that, that is what really, you know, gives me energy that I want to take this message to people to let them know that, you know, it's, it's almost like dental caries. I mean, just as you can take care of your, Dental health, you can take care of your mental health. 
I love that. I'm, I'm curious as to what, um, what in your environment, uh, I'm thinking about the environment that you grew up in, how did that contribute to the work that you've done? Yeah. So where I grew up, I spent the first half of my life in India and the second half in the U.S. Um, uh, I count both places as my home. Uh, I think it, 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 uh, it made me resilient. It lowered my expectations. Uh, yeah. So I grew in a four or 500 square feet home, six of us. Um, we had uh, we didn't have hot and cold water. Oh, we we actually water was uh, you know about in half an hour a day we would have water in the tap and then so you store it. And so taking bath in frigid cold was a very painful experience. And, and now, so so I came from that very low expectation world to uh, there was no insurance, there was no life insurance, health insurance, disability insurance. There was nothing. There's no so you all thrived on relationships. So mm. you need to know the you needed to know the milkman, the post postman. You needed to know the grocery guy on a personal basis. Uh, so so we developed a very relationship centric uh, life. And uh, and I think what has happened to us is that when because we have all kinds of insurances and all kinds of securities and uh, you know all the resources, uh, we do not invest enough in relationships. And the interesting part of us humans is one of the greatest source of joy is relationships. So by virtue of our technological and financial success, we have made ourselves lonely. And that's a byproduct. And you know the, the epidemic of loneliness in our society. There's just so few people we can confide in. So all that helped me understand the value of relationships, the value of having measured expectations. Uh, and of course, I learned from teachers, I learned from the yoga teachers and my mother and others to sort of develop a, a, a little bit of insight into all of this. Wow, I'm just, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I just, I just don't have this really great follow-up question for that because that was fabulous. So, I mean, I think one of the things that you were talking about here is just in this, this world of building relationships and how the current environment given the technology and various different aspects of it don't necessarily help that right they don't build those interpersonal relationships and we get caught in the immediate now of our little phones of our computers of our television sets and we miss the larger opportunity of the long-term happiness that we have for these short-term dopamine hits that yes. we uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Is that anything that you found? Oh, yeah. So there's, uh, there's three kinds of interactions you can have at any time. You can have an adversarial. So we could be shouting at each other right now, but thankfully we are not. <laughs> it, it could be a very transactional interaction and, you know, we could be just handling a business or it could be a more affiliative interaction. Uh, so bulk of our interactions these days are transactional. Okay. While we need six, seven hours of affiliative interaction every day to feel good about ourselves. So, so, so you know, with the grocery clerk, with the teller, with the cab guy, with the, uh, you know, a random stranger who is with you in the elevator, with, with, you know, we can share a smile, a casual, 
you know, hello or uh, or someone you know, a, a nice conversation. Uh, it is so easy to convert uh, a transactional connection to a affiliative connection. When I come back home, one of the rituals I have is I pause in the garage and I remind myself, okay, I'm going to meet some very special people I haven't met for a month. And it changes. Some, I was talking to my, my neighbor yesterday. They were two-year-old. And I said, well, he's 7,000 days away from college. So, <laughs> so gives you perspective. My, my teenager is 1,200 days away from college. So that so when you have this, when you have this presence, which uh, prioritizes affiliative connection all day long, with the person who you're chatting over the phone or through the internet or sending email, there's a person behind. Then it gives you those dopamine surges multiple times. Actually, let's not just confine to dopamine. Dopamine and oxytocin surges. Okay. Yeah. Oxytocin is actually, oxytocin and endorphins are even more nurturing than dopamine is. Yeah. Dopamine promises, but seldom delivers because we are always chasing it. Oxytocin doesn't promise, but delivers. And relationships are a lot about oxytocin. And uh, is, it, is this different for introverts or extroverts? Yeah, so, uh, so it's interesting because at least some research shows that even introverts like to connect with people. It's just that they, they are picky about who they connect with. Uh, they, uh, some of them are a little bit more vulnerable to uh, you know, negative uh, feedback, et cetera. So, uh, so, so introverts are just more, more picky. I try not to look at the world uh, with that divide. I just see that uh, I think everybody likes to connect with someone who enhances their self-worth. See, one of the key aspects of relationships is it is very difficult to dislike somebody who you know likes you. So if, you know, because if I tell you I like you in an authentic way without, you know, asking you to plow my, you know, driveway today, uh, so that is an agenda-driven praise. But if I have no agenda-driven praise, then you will associate me with feeling good about yourself. And then you'll start liking me. So, uh, you know, for example, we have a teenager and uh, one of the best things you can do to your child is to praise them, uh, you know, whether or not they're hearing, they will get that energy eventually. Uh, and so when I sometimes, uh, when she needs to be disciplined, I do discipline, but then I end up with saying that, you know, when I was 14, I was much worse than you are. <laughs> <laughs> so then you have a better, better receiver. Well, and they, they can then, uh, uh, you know, align with what you're saying because now it becomes this, this component of, of having that, that relationship and yeah. you're being real. There's a, going back to the component where you were just talking about the transactional nature of, our interactions today. And you are just saying, taking those transactional interactions and creating a little bit more of this affiliated, you know, this, this element of really taking them beyond that into something else can be very powerful in helping people live a better life. So what are, how does one do that? How, how do you take that transaction with the cashier at the grocery store or, the riding up the elevator with somebody. What what are some hints or tips that you would suggest? Actually, uh, uh, for people you know, you have connected with. It's uh, it's obviously you you have to be 
awake to this idea. And one of the things I suggest is to remind people they were in your thoughts. Uh, so, uh, for example, you and I chatted about two weeks ago. And if I remind you about something specific you said, I really uh, loved uh, the comment you made about how you connect with your clients. And I thought about it and I researched, get back to you. Now, I've complimented you that you we were connected. I take you seriously. I notice it. I process it. I'm getting back to you. So reminding people they were in your thoughts. Uh, reminding people how they were right. Uh, so, honey, you were really right when you, and then fill anything after that, you've got five minutes of undivided attention. People <laughs> love to be reminded how they were right. Compliment, taking their help, uh, particularly with people who feel vulnerable or teenagers uh, or, you know, kids, adults, both. Uh, if, if you seek somebody's help and implement it and give them feedback how their help uh, help helped you then they start associating you with feeling good about themselves because you enhance their self-worth right so in whatever domain the other person is strong taking their suggestion their help uh, and and then you know uh, simple things as um, i remember i was recently I, I talked to a colleague of mine and uh, I heard myself say, I didn't plan it. I said, oh, I, I'm, it's so good to hear your voice. I was missing it. And she paused and she said, you know what? I haven't heard anyone say that to me. And I've been married 25 years. Oh. <laughs> oh. So I think when you authentically, uh, here's the thing. Everybody on the planet is special and struggling in their own unique way. So you're worth trillions for somebody. Uh, you, there was a baby shower that preceded you. There was celebration when you were born and you were raised by you know, loving parents who maybe sometimes sacrifice their safety and comfort for your safety. So, so you're precious, you're, you're special in your own unique way. And I'm not saying this in a in a cliche, you know, just oh, everybody is worth whatever. So, and then second thing is you have struggles. I know that you've got you know insula and anterior cingulate cingulate cortex, which is your pain matrix. I know you've got amygdala. Uh, I know you would like your reward center to be more active than it is. So, by virtue of having human brain, I know you've got struggles. So when you approach every human being, assuming they're special and struggling, you will find authentic way to helping them feel worthy. And if you can keep doing that day after day, person after person, I mean, that's how you become that. Uh, and people like your presence. Sorry. Well, so I, I wanted to get back to this. Uh, you, you brought this dovetails into a question that I've been thinking about since you brought up the how our brains are so sophisticated in solving problems and advancing. And and as human beings, we've made tremendous advancements. At the same time, we're emotionally sort of stunted. Uh, if I'm paraphrasing incorrectly, I'm please uh, please uh, correct me. But but how? Why is there this dichotomy? Why are these two so? opposed to each other rather than working with each other see we evolved uh we evolved in a in a world which was intensely competitive uh we had to we are we are the successful species so 
So there's two of your ancestors, Bob and Bill, okay? So Bob is the uh, happy-go-lucky type and Bill is the better safe than sorry type. Uh, there is noise in the bushes and Bob says, could be a tiger, but most likely a hedgehog, I'll be okay. While Bill said, could be a tiger, let me run for cover, better safe than sorry. Guess what? A proportion of the time, it was the tiger. And so all the Bobs who were happy-go-lucky got eaten away and <laughs> survived to transmit their genes. So what has happened is, uh, it's a speculative theory, but what has happened is over the years, over the, over the centuries, millennia, we have selected intense competition, negativity, bias uh, for survival benefit. Right. But that is no longer applicable because now it is not competition that will make us succeed. It is compassion and collegiality. You, you know that in the what NBA, uh, the more physical touch players have, the more high fives they do, the more likely their team is going to win in the end. So it's the compassion and collegiality. The best way to be competitive in the modern world is to be compassionate and collegial. I've personally never met a compassionate uh, provider, a uh, compassionate professional who was not you know, competent and, and, and uh, collegial at the same time. I was just reading an article this morning, actually, in regards to the, the social network that people have inside of the organization if they're working and that the bigger that that social network is that you could that the people who are there with you the more likely that you are to actually move up within the organization and to have your projects succeed and a variety of other things and it aligns I think a lot with what you are saying here in that component of today this this community, this building of a, uh, a network or a tribe is, is vastly uh, important and much more so than trying to say, how can I beat those people over here and that, that I'm in competition with these other folks that are in the organization with me. So We are because we belong. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, that's the key. Uh, the, I think com uh, this whole competitive spirit is necessary, but I would like to have a different competition. You know, I don't want to compete in my net worth. I want to compete in the number of people I'm able to help. Mm. You know, so if you're helping 10,000 people, I'm going to compete with you and help help 20,000. <laughs> so having an altruistic kind of competition, which inspires you instead of engendering envy, that is what we need. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, this, you know, one of the challenges is this uh, in, in the stock market or financial world, we have to report earnings every quarter, mm -hmm. you know, so, so every company is prioritizing this quarter and the next quarter and their options are tight. What if companies had to report earnings every three years? You know, all right, so let's have a three-year vision now to develop really finding ways. I mean, I don't think there are too many entrepreneurs thinking about how do I increase forgiveness in the world? Um, they're thinking about how do I get, you know, a million uh, kids to get hooked to my app? Yeah. And then the collateral damage is convert those kids into zombies who, you know, are looking at their iPhones while crossing the road, right? Uh, and the driver is also looking at iPhone while driving. Uh, or any smartphone, I don't mean iPhone alone. <laughs> so, yes. 
that's the challenge. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to think about that again from an from actually a motivation work, which I've done a, a lot on, is when you can align people to a larger purpose, it actually is more motivational. And that purpose usually cannot be monetary in nature because you're making a million dollars for the organization and that might lead a little bit to me. That's okay. And there's, there's, there's motivation there, but it does not drive that intrinsic motivation that comes with, Hey, how can we make this world better for 10,000 kids, for 20,000 kids, for a million kids? Uh, and so I think you've tapped into something there. Yeah. I, I wanted to get back to uh, intentionality. You, you've written a lot about intentionality. And uh, what brought you to that? And can you share uh, some tips about uh, and the, the payoff of living life with more intentionality? Yeah. So, so the, the, the flip side is living life instinctively. You know, when I instinctively, uh, guided by my innate instincts that are part of my evolutionary baggage, when I wake up, I wake up with anxiety, I mind wander right away, I think about what should I do, what should I dread, uh, I get upset with, I'm just flipping on everything, I have time pressure, I'm, I'm not courteous on the road, I'm trying to beat the competition somehow, uh, and I see a, a busy calendar and uh, I'm already... I'm, I'm negative. I'm I'm fighting myself, uh, and and every time I meet a goal, the goalpost is moved further. And so that's the instinctive form of living, which is basically driven by eat, do not get eaten, and reproduce. Those are the three basic instinctive drivers: <laughs> appetitive, defensive, and reproductive. Yep. That's not. You know, that's not satisfying. It may be satisfying to a chimpanzee, you know, eat, do not get, get eaten and reproduce. But I'm, I'm homo sapiens. I've got, you know, we all have beautiful prefrontal cortex. I want to enjoy, you know, compassion and gratitude in my prefrontal cortex. I want to, uh, you know, of the thousand ice creams I have eaten in my life, the one I remember is the one that I gave to a little kid who was hungry instead of eating myself. That's the only ice cream I remember. I don't remember any other ice cream. All of this needs intentionality. I need to remind myself. Mind has a great tendency to forget. You know, so I need to remind myself, okay, so what are the values uh, that I want to embody? And, and that, that is the, the whole piece of intentional living. Uh, you intentionally pay attention to what seems ordinary. For example, when was the last time did you pause and look at your loved one's eyes, you know, and just look at their eyes without any problem solving or planning or judgments? That is intentionality. So you develop this intentionality to notice novelty within ordinary. You eat an apple intentionally. You sit on the chair intentionally. You uh, Yesterday we were unloading the dishwasher and I told um, my daughter, you know, remove every dish without creating any extra noise than you have to. And so, touch, you know, collect the plates very gently and see how that experience changes. That's intentionally unloading the dishwasher. It's very simple. It's, you know, it's not... It's not, you know, investing an hour or two hours just sitting, focusing on breath. So, and then intentional thinking of how do I frame an experience? If someone forgot my birthday, maybe I should have compassion for them that they are very busy uh, with their life instead of 
they don't care about me anymore so so this intentionality allows you to create that that space between you know action and response and that space allows you to bring your recruit your higher cortical brain and you know someone cross you know cutting you across on the road maybe they're rushing to the er with a sick child right or they are going to have a third baby and they are rushing so so we need that intentionality otherwise if you tailgate me i'm going to get out and get into a fight with you while you are tailgating that's our instinct yeah so how do emotions play into this intentionality because emotions are a big component of how we live and they're there how do they either enhance or, or distract from that intentionality Oh yeah i mean uh, emotions are very very powerful uh, it, it, i think every experience has a flavor of emotions associated with it and we seek uplifting emotions uh, and we seek uplifting emotions from uh, two main sources uh, dopamine and oxytocin mm-hmm. and uh, the dopamine uh, emotion is uh, is it gives you short term pleasure success winning lots sums of money novelty seeing the big you know moon for the first time you know um tulips appearing in the so so that's the dopamine and then oxytocin is an endorphins in combination are more nurturing compassion gratitude forgiveness um uh, you know random acts of kindness things like that so so the more we can actively nurture these uplifting emotions both dopamine and oxytocin uh, but the problem with dopamine is that it depends on something external to feed us and it exhausts quickly oxytocin we can generate right now right now i can think about you know every second five babies are born every second on the planet and i can think about okay i'm just going to send good wishes to those five babies who are being born on the planet and every second three people die so i'm um, somebody's sad too at this moment so our brain if you ask me what is the core hunger of human brain it is uplifting emotions okay it is, is it, uh, it, it, it earlier you talked about uh, people with uh, low prefront, prefrontal dopamine or particular childhood challenges is it harder for them to develop those oxytocin uh, moments yeah they they would they would struggle a little bit more um, because one is they may be pre contemplative in the sense that um, many times you you lose hope you lose hope that there is anyone kind in the world uh, when those who were interested to love you unconditionally abuse you you start seeing world with those eyes you know it's not your fault because that's you know how do you you know it's almost like you know when you pour concrete and if you if you sort of scratch few lines on that concrete then when the concrete sets those lines are there their brain was very vulnerable when they experienced abuse and and then they lose hope to that anybody would come you know they they'll see agenda behind kindness mm. they will see uh, they will find very little to be grateful for so so they will struggle but you know I, at some point we have to re- you know wake up and say that uh, shall i allow a person who shouldn't be in my story to write the title of my story mm. would you allow that you know 
if you if you had an abusive somebody in your past that person doesn't belong in your story but will you allow that person to write the title of your story for the rest of your life the answer is no absolutely not and so when people realize that then they wake up and then they implement change i'm i'm re- i'm reminded of this lady she had smoked for 50 years she couldn't quit and one day she quit like that so i asked what happened she said you know i leaned forward to kiss my kiss my grandson and he took two steps back and he said grandma you stink mm. and that was it that's the power of emotions yeah yeah that gets into that power of emotions mm. so um for our listeners if you had to just and and we're going to summarize you know however many years of your work and experience <laughs> into two or three points that if they could take anything from this hour that they've spent with us to to have a better life what are there are there a couple things that you could say hey you know if you just think about this differently or if you do these types of things these will help they're not going to be pancreatic cure everything but this is the the get the path started how what what would you recommend two or three things i i always find it difficult but i'll okay. i'll try so one is uh, one is to take charge of your brain okay. uh, just as you take charge of your heart uh, uh cultivate intentional kindness to yourself and to others there's three relationships we have with others with self and with what we consider sacred so cultivating kindness and integrating those three relationships uh reframe 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 um there is something positive in negative um uh, if something won't matter in 5 years it's not worth your time to get upset today and personally i know two people who are alive today because they missed their flight those two their flights crashed but they missed it and so they are alive so so when you go through an adversity remember that maybe it may be protecting you from some catastrophe you don't even know wow wow well let's um th- thank you for those uh let's talk a little bit about music you love music oh yes i love music uh, so uh so tell us about uh, what what's on your playlist and and how do you experience music uh thank you next <laughs> um, so i um, i came uh, i came from india so i was uh, i listened to classical uh, you know indian music and uh, um, all the contemporary singers there uh, of late uh, with uh, my teenagers and teenager daughter and my uh, second daughter i've been listening to um, all kinds of you know taylor swift ariana grande and uh, you name it and i really enjoy it uh, i uh, pretty much whatever is playing on either the minnesota radio or the uh, minneapolis radio or rochester radio i i enjoy it so you don't find a conflict between taylor swift and ravi shankar <laughs> no they're both using the same vocal cords you know ravi shankar was playing his sitar but uh, uh uh from what i know taylor swift is a uh, is a uh, is a, is a is a wonderful actually i had a uh, article with her many many years ago on gratitude where uh, that's my my uh, na- my claim to fame with my teenager that taylor swift swift and i you know were in the same article you know many years <laughs> ago Uh, Taylor Swift's attitude of gratitude. I think you will find it somewhere on Google. 
No, yeah. I don't find any conflict. Music has wonderful data for its uh, effectiveness on decreasing pain, on decreasing anxiety, improving behavioral uh, 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 outcomes and, and such. I'm always impressed with the amount of literature that is available uh, with music. And uh, I think kids these days, um, uh, they, they absolutely news, need music to calm down. Interestingly, uh, uh, my wife and I had a discussion whether, uh, whether the kids will be distracted by music in their, when they're trying to solve math problems or whatever. So we looked at the literature and we found that actually their learning goes, it gets better when they're listening to music. As long as it's sort of the music, not too many lyrics, uh, so, uh, what I didn't tell our kids was that even chewing gum enhanced learning. <laughs> <laughs> Tim and I have had this ongoing component. We often ask our guests, uh, do you listen to music when you are working? When do you use music to help you focus your brain and, and, and do those different things? I, I do. Tim does not. And, um, you know, I actually should have gone out to the literature to look up that stuff, but I, I did not. Well, for me, I mean, it, going back to Ravi Shankar, I mean, if he's going to be doing this really great raga, I want to listen to it. I want to engage in it. I mean, I want, I want the full experience of how, where he's going to take that and, and how it's going to go. And I want to be on that journey with the musician. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. So two things. One is... Depends on the depth of attention needed. So if I'm editing an image or, uh, you, you know, checking grammar or whatever, some, something simple, then I would put music. But if I really want to, you know, uh, create a set of lines, a series of, uh, you, you know, uh, thoughts like you read earlier, complex thought in, from the Stress-Free Living book, then I, I just want to be very quiet. Yeah. And, and think about it, uh, you know, deeper. So, so I agree with both of you. Yeah, I think it's interesting because what Tim just said, it reminded me when you're talking about living intentionally and, and with that focus. And so for music, it seems you have a very intentional component when you're listening to that music. I am, yeah. That, which I, I don't necessarily always have. And so maybe there's a component. But of, you find a lot of joy. Oh, yes, I, I do. And, but I also can use music as a background filter and I don't have to be intentional about listening to it. Let, might let, me, let me share one thing. So we have X amount of attention. Let's say you have 100 units of attention. If your work is needing all 100 units of attention, then you've got no dispensable attention to give. Or if the kind of music you're listening to needs 100 units of attention. Now, if you're driving, your work needs 20 units of attention. Then you've got that rest 80 right? Now, if you don't do anything, that rest 80 will most likely mind wander. And you will think about mind wandering is generally not a very pleasant experience, instinctive mind wandering. So what people do now is sip coffee, listen to music, speed and look out for police car all at the same time. <laughs> so, so, so what, what we do is if there is an activity that is not capturing 100 units of attention, then you can fill the rest, if you wish, with music, so you do not mind wander. Because so being intentional about how you use that, so that 100 units of attention get filled regardless. It's just as you are yes. being, okay. 
Yes, it's going to get filled regardless. So that's why when I was talking about unloading the dishwasher, if you unload dishwasher without thinking you're going to mind wander and unload dishwasher. But if you say, I'm going to unload dishwasher without creating any extraneous noise. Now, now that is going to absorb all your 100 units of attention. Yeah, very that's interesting. And we know that attention is a very, very limited resource. Yeah. That's a, that's a, but the more intentional you are about engaging with what is, particularly if see if you have a if you have a baby elephant walking outside your office right now, that's going to draw your attention. It's novel, but the key is to be able to admire the grains on that stump of a dead tree. So the more you can notice novelty in what seems very mundane and you know boring, that's the key to train your attention. That is when your attention becomes intentional. And is that a lot of the work on mindfulness is, is from my understanding, is really being able to uh, allow yourself to be able to focus in on sometimes some of those very mundane facts and really allow your brain to, to look at that and explore it and, and, and have that component and not, as you said, that wandering mind. Yes, and it was very essential for survival, you know, going back to, you know, where, where I grew up and, in, you know, go, to, go back two, three thousand years ago when mindfulness was conceived, uh, you know, you would walk, you couldn't walk two miles without encountering, you know, quicksand and, you know, maybe a stray draw, dog and, you know, swarm of mosquitoes. So you had to be very aware of the world around you to survive. So mindfulness was essential to survival at that time, you know, paying, paying undistracted intentional attention because you had to be safe. Uh, but now you can get by with very little attention. I mean, the other day I flew to San Diego, uh, you know, I crossed 10,000 people. I was in my computer all, yeah. <laughs> all six hours, right? So that's why we need to intentionally cultivate it because when we don't, then we start mind wandering when, you know, have you struggled, you, your partner tell, tells you two or three things and you say, what was that? Because you were not noticing. Oh, ne never, never, never. never. That, okay, that never happens to me. <laughs> your, your, nose, your nose got a little longer right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you noticed, yeah, yeah, it absolutely would, definitely. And I think today, to, to your point, the environment that we live in is not necessarily designed for us to, to have that because again, we have the uh, distractions that come with a phone, that come with the, the life that is constantly being barraged with advertisements. With, and again, looking at the number of people that we meet in our lifetime versus living in a small community in the past that, you know, you probably didn't necessarily meet as many people and, and a variety of different things. So there's a, a, all of those factors are playing into this this life that can kind of shortchange some of this focus and some of the mindfulness and some of this just, you know, admiring the grains in the tree stump and not having to look and make sure and see if there's a elephant outside in my snowy backyard to draw my attention that I should be actually be able to, you know, focus in on the beautiful, you know, grains of, of wood. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what happens. My wife, I asked her uh, a few months ago, what is your first thought when you see me at the end of the day? And she said, chores, what can I get you to do in the garage? So, <laughs> so, so what happens is uh, when we do not, when we, when we stop 
noticing novelty when when we do not intentionally choose to notice novelty then uh, partners become borderline boring after some time work becomes boring and like transactional right that going back exactly, to that transactional exactly problem. exactly then you start you know the whole relationship becomes transactional that is when relationship starts losing dopamine and we start distancing from each other so in every relationship that is long term we have to intentionally sprinkle uh this this noticing novelty practice this is one of our core practices actually uh, at the end of the day so uh, so so between love and novelty i mean most people i ask after 20 years of marriage i say do you love each other yeah of course so now if you're sitting at a at a cafeteria and your high school buddy shows up who's going to be more interesting your spouse or high school buddy and everybody you know i may have asked this to about 100000 people if not more everybody says high school buddy because between me and my spouse is love between me and my high school buddy is novelty see novelty beats love that's a bad design yeah you want to be in the same relationship for a long time and so that's why it's key to find novelty where love is wow you know we 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 also just uh, we just had a conversation with George Lowenstein he is working on a functional theory a functional framework on boredom and uh, it, it might be interesting uh, as he he's working on it with a, with another uh, junior colleague and i don't know how far he is away from publishing but but um uh, i can just imagine intentionality is going to have some influence on that yeah. oh brain hates boredom uh, in one study people chose to give themselves painful electric shock uh, in preference to sitting and getting bored for 5 minutes <laughs> wow. and, wow and men, men did much more than women you know uh, ah! <laughs> so brain hates getting bored uh, but a brain that is allowing itself to get bored is is not is living in an instinctive way it is depending on the external world to you know excite it Yeah. Uh, that's not going to happen. So well, I, it was interesting I with the with George what the piece that I took out of that is he he actually said boredom is physically painful for me. For And him, yeah. For for him, which I had not uh, you know, I I yeah. I not necessarily experienced that, but it's interesting that when you bring up this, you know, the this was that boredom painful more painful than the electric shock pain yeah. that you have and so i could see that being as a that's a rational trade off that <laughs> the boredom that i have is actually manifesting itself in in this pain so i'll just take that physical pain and 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 go from there so, so when my wife says are you going to be okay for next 4 hours we are going i said you are leaving my brain to enjoy you yeah. know i'm happy to enjoy my brain so <laughs> i think if you can uh, if you can intentionally choose to uh, increase your dopamine and or oxytocin then then you're you're good to go and of course books and music are always there yeah wow i i get uh, amit this has been such a wonderful discussion we are so grateful for your time and your insights and your 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 intentionality <laughs> in bringing such wonderful stuff to us thank you Yeah, thank, thank you, you very thank much. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Good luck with your work and uh hello to all your uh, listeners. Take care. Thank you, Dr. Sue. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavior grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics and whatever else comes into our happy 
little brains. Or big happy brains. Because big happy brains. Amit was big and happy and grateful and high on gratitude and humble and it was cool. Wonderful, wonderful. So it was a great interview. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Kurt, so what struck you as, uh, as the number one thing that you want to talk about? So I think uh, Amit talked a lot about applying things to your personal life. And so mm-hmm. I, it, I thought it was really interesting to try to think about this. Well, how would I apply some of these concepts into work life, into an organization? And I think one of the really interesting pieces that struck me was this component of the different types of interactions that we can have and how he talked about, you can have an adversarial interaction. We punch you in the nose, right? We we're we're going at it. Or we can have a transactional interaction, yeah. or we can have this, what he called that affiliative interaction, that more of a personal, we, we want a emotive kind of element where we're really showing that there's an affiliation between us. That was and, cool. And I think that's a really powerful way of thinking. And within organizations, oftentimes, particularly employee to employee within organizations, there's that component of we're really being um, transactional. Very much so. Yes, we have our group of friends, but everybody else, it's, you know, I'm asking you to do something for me or you're asking me to do something for you. And there is a very transactional component about it. And how can we make those transactional components more affiliative? And what are some of the, the ways of being able to do that? Yeah, it, it, uh, it certainly subscribes to the fact that we need hours of affiliative relationship in order to be happy. Which Dr. Sue talked about. And we are going to look for it when we can. But are there things about getting hurt that prevent us, that impede our willingness to actually be affiliative in, in the work environment? Well, and thinking about that work environment, right? So, you know, I, I looked at this and, I, and it immediately struck me as I was thinking about this, about that four drive model, that that need to yeah. bond, right? The bond and belong and that affiliative component. And so, so you would think that would be very motivational. But then to your point of being hurt, in, in work, oftentimes we have to be direct and we have to be demanding sometimes. And so is there a, is there a hesitancy to be more affiliative with other people, particularly maybe people who you will have to be asking to go above and beyond if you're in a leadership position or even in a position of, of some sort of power. So does that inhibit people from wanting to take a transactional relationship and make it more affiliative? Because if it's affiliative and you become friends with this person and now you have to, you might have to be reprimanding them on their performance or some other component. I don't know. I don't know if that's a. I think it's it's a good it's a it's a good question to ask, and it seems like it's a good theory to work on, and maybe that's something that we should do some research on because that that seems to make some sense. I think there's some sense there, but I also think, wow, wouldn't it be so much more powerful to have an organization that is much more affiliative, so that we are working in this environment that is making us happy. As, as Dr. Suit said, we need to have these types of interactions four, five, six hours a day, something like that. I yeah. can't remember exactly what he said. So how would that work in, in this growing need for responsiveness? I'm going to, I'm going to take us into something that was really important to me and his, 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 the way he was talking about uh, our need for responsiveness is increasing. Right. That 10,000 years ago, just, you know, 
not meeting somebody and not beating each other up. Hey, that was a good meeting. Now it's wow, you have to, you know, answer that text in 30 seconds or right. you know, you're somebody's mad at you. Right. So if if the organization thrives, if we have uh, we have ideas like from Annie Duke where it's it's more important to be accurate in our in our communication, right? Then in in the ideas that we bring forward and the way that we talk to each other that accuracy is more important than just um, you know, you you're, you're just giving me the thumbs up even though you don't believe it, right? right. So that's a lack of authenticity. Um how does that work with being more affiliative? Can we have a more affiliative relationship between the two of us at work and enhance uh, this need for accuracy in in our communication and and the way we make decisions? There's a lot in that in that question, right? Uh, yeah. you, you think about, yes, so how can we strive to get to the truth, not be transactional and be more affiliative? And yet, how do we mean that affiliation if if we're, you know, saying things to other people who who may not? And going back, um, Ray Dalio wrote the radical transparency. Well, he wrote a book, Principles, that he talks about his mm. company, Radical Transparency and Radical Truth. And I think there's something there. I think there's something about the creating a culture where it's expected, that that truth is expected. So that affiliation component of this is actually where I'm upset with you when you're not holding me accountable, when you're not showing me how I could be wrong. And, and then, then it's less of an, uh, then the transactional component is when you don't do that. And the affiliative component conversations happen when you are actually putting that mirror up and saying, this is really you. Is that the you that you want to be? I, I could imagine that. I could imagine a culture being that. And Amit even speaks to this idea of of we we can become uh, habitualized to thinking about other people rather than, that asshole just cut me off. Say, well, no, he has, uh, what did he say? A low prefrontal dopamine. <laughs> you know, right? I loved that. I, I loved all of his components about bringing dopamine and oxytocin and the that endorphins in there because that that's what I... I, you, I you jive did that? on. I jive on that. Really? I'm using jive and dig. You have you have really <laughs> influenced my words, Tim. I'm realizing this. No, on on that component, I think there is something in the culture. So Ray Dalio and and how he's forming his organization. I think there are some components of that that if you create that type of environment. And so from an organizational perspective, we can be more affiliative. We can have that bonding and belonging motivation while still striving to get to the truth, while still doing that. And I think that's a positive component. And I think if Very much more so. organizations were able to go and do that, and again, to this component of, of how those elements get framed in our head, right? And so you're talking about that guy cutting you off. Is the guy cutting you off in, in the line? Maybe because he has low prefrontal dopamine, <laughs> but it might be yeah. because he just found out that his wife is going into labor and he has to get to the hospital. Yeah. Um, or he got fired that morning and he's just really angry. Right. And so we don't, and I loved, you know, Amit talking about every person on this world is going through their own struggles. Yeah. And- if we take that moment to to step back and to realize that, how much better 
would our interactions be? But that works against this uh, trend toward a higher level of a demand for responsiveness. I think. Yeah. It's like and 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 resulting. Right. Right. It's it's what what you did or what I felt is is how I'm going to process that. And if you took too long to get back to me, and if you if you responded with any word that set me off, then that's what I'm going to remember. And that's how I'm going to judge it, rather than. But but I. But getting back to your point, if if the right culture was built within mm-hmm. the organization, it's possible to overcome those things. Yeah. Well, you remind me of Jonathan um, Haidt's um, new book. What? Oh, about the uh, coddling of the American mind. Coddling of the American mind. Right. This this component that we are so fragile now that yeah. small little things that set us off and and. Is that doing us any good? And particularly, I think he's talking about students in there um, and the variety of universities and not allowing dispersion thoughts being, you know, spoken on campus and various different things. There's a lot going into that. But I think there's this element of this responsiveness that you're talking to that comes down to how easily we are to be offended. Yeah. And... And, and how to, and how quick we are to make that judgment, and 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 that lends itself not to being seeking the truth. That lends itself into taking the easy way as opposed to a more constructive, but might be emotionally painful way to seek the truth. And in the end, is that the best thing for you, for the team, for the company? Right for the community at whole, that's right. and I think that's interesting. Which we could link back to the way Ori Brofman was talking about distributed networks and distributed decision making. If everybody's really aligned with the business objectives, there could be more distributed uh, decision making. Right, people could take more responsibility if everyone is held more accountable. If there is a more, uh, if there's a greater sense of we're really in this together. Yeah, and wouldn't that be a greater way to to work in an organization? I think. The last thing I want to talk about with the meet, and if you have more, you, we can go in there, but is this component of intentionality. Yeah. Uh, all of what we've just been talking about, if we can be more intentional in how we respond and how we think about going back to, you know, that somebody cutting us off and, and instead of thinking, oh, what an asshole, framing it and thinking about it from what are the alternative reasons why that that person might be cutting us off. It might be because he is an asshole. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it could be a number of other things. And I think within an, in a work organization, when we quickly jump to those conclusions or we don't go and make a decision because we're fearful of what potential consequences might come down, but if we're more intentional about how we are doing these things and thinking about them and the actions that we're taking, then I think that lends itself to being a much more productive, efficient, and a happier workplace. Well, this sounds like system one, system two thinking. It does. Right? I mean, this is this is employing more of the deliberate mind. But even with that, right, uh, Amit says, indicates that we can build those habits. 
Like we we can get into the mode of of doing that and regularly taking that into consideration, just as a a yes and can become part of our regular vocabulary and brainstorming and discussions and team meetings and things like that. Yes and can become the habit, so it doesn't have to be such deliberate thinking. It doesn't have to be system two thinking all the time. Right. So that all of a sudden, instead of having to to stop and think about, oh, that guy that cut me off might be this, this, or this. It's that first instinct that comes to us. It's yeah. the first response. It can it's become not the that. asshole. It's the, what is going on in his life that he's, that he's acting this way. Or it's not about me. Right. Oh, that's, <laughs> How about that? <laughs> and so, so from an organizational perspective, what can organizations do? What can we do at work? A, I, I know we can do, try to take this on ourselves. We can try to think through, you know, some of his components of of thinking with gratitude and compassion and forgiveness, uh, all of those factors. But how do you build that into an organization? Can leaders demonstrate this? Yes. Why not? Why not expect that leaders can demonstrate it? Uh, Why? Because it, it, organizations are still very much still very much dominated by leadership thinking and leadership actions. And so what leaders do and how they delegate and how they trust and how they show transparency and, and how they, they are intentional in their own communication can make a difference in the organization. So I think there could be a component of A, just understanding, right? But then you get into the um, G.I. Joe fallacy, right? Un, you know, information in and of itself isn't enough. But I think... There could be training for leadership and then just a concerted effort by leaders to be able to do this. And that means if you, it could leadership from the top, but it could also be if you're leading a team, you can make that concerted effort. Yes. And, and make a difference. And tying that into some of the other, you know, information that we got from some of the other podcasts that we've done, the Annie Duke and not being a resulting and looking at, you know, probability thinking and and getting to the truth of the matter and not being right, you know, getting to some of that distributed trust that Ori was talking about and how do you have that trust going out within yeah. your organization. So I think that that type of leadership lends itself into then some of these things that we were just talking about with Amit. So. Yeah. Okay, so with that, I just have a, a quick music question for you. Great. Um, so it's this is a, a lot of this is about being open, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we, uh, I mean, talked about well, you know, he doesn't really discriminate between Taylor Swift or Ravi Shankar. Uh, so uh, how about you? Do you discriminate uh, musically? Oh, there's music I like and music I don't like. Yeah. So that's discrimination, uh, yeah, right? Yeah. So me too. So yes. So I would I would say I I do. Yeah. Okay. Me too. All right. All right. That's and is all. that it? That's it. I just that was a quickie. I have I have one question for you totally off off topic on music, but you know, what is the one song that you if you could have written it um that you would just say, "Yes, that's the song that I if it wasn't already written, I would want to have written that song." Is there a song? Oh, wow, one song? Well, multiple songs. Are there? Are there a couple? Yeah. Where, where, yeah all oh, right. There are which, songs. Which that ones? I, there are songs that I think are just magical, right? Okay. Which ones? Uh, in In My Life, uh, by Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Okay. You know, just absolutely amazing. Eleanor Rigby, amazing song again. Uh, Beatles. Um, Any songs after 1978? <laughs> <laughs> um. 
Oh, I'm just, you know, about uh, the the vampire song, uh, Jason Isbell's yeah. Uh, tune, yeah, about uh, when we were vampires. Yeah, if we, if, know, we, if, were, we if we were vampires. Yeah, that's a, such a cool tune. Yeah. Oh, that is a great. That is yeah. that that would be one of mine. Actually, I think that would be one. Uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. okay. So what else is on your list? I would. Um, um, people are people. Depeche Mode. Somebody by Depeche Mode. There's there's two there. Okay. Um, Jason Isbell. I think those are yeah. there's three right there. So. That's enough. <laughs> two two people, you know. We, all right, over up. We 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 have one at least same song there. So absolutely, you know, all right, absolutely. So with that, thank you, listeners. Hopefully, this was an insightful uh, episode. And if you did like it, please leave us a great review. Please, and, please uh, do. We will, you know, have another one next week. So thank you very much. And with that, keep, keep on, on grooving. grooving.